All right. Uh, we're going to read the Bible now. So it's going to come up on the screen for you if you have a Bible with you. We're looking at Acts uh, chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 10 to 14. It says this. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is God's word. Hi, well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. It's really good to be here with you this morning and moving through the book of Acts. And um, we're traveling through quite a few chapters this morning. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done this to yourself before, but sometimes, sometimes your past self will make a great decision for you and that will really help your future self. And other times you stitch yourself up. And somewhere in January when I set the series passages at the beginning of the year, I chose that this would be the week where we'd cover not one chapter or half a chapter or two chapters, but five. And so we'll see whether or not that was a great decision or a terrible decision. And uh, you can be the judge at the end of this time. But I'm going to pray for us that as we move through this last phase of the book of Acts, as we see the gospel go out to the nations, and as we see the gospel that started in Jerusalem, then spread out to the surrounding region, and is now going throughout the Roman Empire, that what we are going to see is that God is sovereignly bringing about his purposes, and that he always has been and always will. And so I'm going to pray that he'd open our eyes to see that this morning. Let's pray. Father, just pray that this morning that we would be able to right-size you, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe, that there is nothing outside of your control, and that you are bringing all of history to a final point, that all will stand before you, that every knee will bow before Christ and every tongue confess. And until that day, you are calling people from every tribe, nation and tongue to yourself. And may we see that you are calling us to be a part of your great story. And that everyone who follows you and calls upon the name of Jesus is a part of you bringing together all things under one head, even Christ. So, Father, we pray these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but suddenly every movie is about the multiverse. And it's not just kind of like one particular franchise of films. It just keeps popping up everywhere. And this idea has been floating around in kind of more metaphysics sort of circles for a long time, but it's suddenly landed in pop culture and just exploded. And so suddenly every movie has like multiple versions of the same character. All the films have the same vibe. I don't know if you got that. They've got the sense of just a constant scroll, that things are just constantly changing. Things are bursting on the screen. The scenes are moving really rapidly. It has this kind of sense of like endless, meaningless scrolling. And the reason that it has that is not indeliberate. It's meant to give a sense that everything is happening all the time, all at once. It's almost meant to give us a very internet-y kind of feel of a film. But I don't know if you've noticed another thing. That a lot of these films 
that engage with the idea of a multiverse do struggle to hold together a story where the stakes really matter. Because, things, because it's the case that there are multiple universes and pretty much every iteration of reality that can be is somewhere in the multiverse, then things kind of don't matter that much. Characters can die and then just come back in another way. Or something can happen and then it can be undone and then redone. But not only that, but characters themselves don't matter that much. If you're a character that makes a good moral choice, then there's a bad version of you somewhere else in the multiverse. And so the fact that you are good is not really a matter of virtue. It's just a matter of kind of random calibration. That actually in the multiverse, nothing really matters. And to see the world as a multiverse is to see our universe as nothing special. There's nothing unique about human life. There's nothing unique about our reality. It's just that there's some kind of random calculator out there just generating different universes and each of them is as insignificant as every other. And what it gives the sense is that nothing really matters. Nature means nothing. It's just another random iteration of things. Morality is nothing. If there's a good version of you somewhere, there's a bad version, there's an in-between, there's every other possibility and it doesn't matter. And it leads to a sense that in the end, nothing really matters. And I think, I think, that's why multiverse stories have become so popular because it does sum up, in some ways, how we start to feel about life. That actually, if we are just the, the end point of a bunch of blind evolutionary processes, then we are just an accident. Then nothing really matters. There's nothing special about our reality or our being or the choices that we make. It's just stuff that happens or doesn't happen. And so in a world like that, everything is nothing. Just random simulation and a constant scroll and a desire for novelty but no real significance or meaning or purpose. But the Bible does not hold this view of the world. The view of scriptures and the truth of scripture is that there is a sovereign God who is sovereign over every single atom in the universe and of every space in between. That there is a God who is in control of all things, and of whom it cannot be said that there is anything outside his control, and that history is not random, or it's not an inconsequential sequence, but it is actually being brought together purposefully by a good designer and creator, that he is bringing things about for his own purposes. And for the one who follows God, the way you view the world is not as just random or meaningless, but knowing that everything that you see around you is within the sovereign control of a good and loving God. And not only that, but in the book of Acts, we'll see that this isn't the story of a bunch of heroic characters who managed to change history by fear of their own sort of personality or conviction. But actually what they were, were just a bunch of kites caught up in a whirlwind of God's storm. That actually it was God himself who was bringing things about that he purposefully sent his son Jesus to die and to rise again, and he himself is building his church and is arranging the events in such a way that this gospel, this message of Jesus, is going to go out from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And that the reason that we're here in Sydney, Australia, talking about it is because he has brought it about 2,000 years after the stories that we're going to read in the text this morning. And so even though this story is going to focus on one particular character, Paul, 
Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't want us to miss the fact that it's not that Paul is in control here or that Paul is so smart and so strategic that he's managed to work out all these events in his favor. But actually, there is a great and sovereign God in charge of everything that's happening around him. And he is bringing about his purposes. And so we're going to see this picking up the story from where we left off last week. Last week, Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He called them to an area called Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus. And he's saying his farewell. He basically says to these leaders who he's done life with for three years, who he's shared incredible experiences with, who he's seen come to faith, he says to them, look, I'm going, I'm heading to Jerusalem. And to be honest, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but it's probably not going to be good and I'm not going to see you again. And just picking up after this story, Luke writes in Acts 21.1, he says this, that after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Koz. So Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Acts, is with Paul for this part of the story. That's why he uses the we and us language. And he says, we tore ourselves away from those Ephesian elders. That as they said goodbye, it was a really hard goodbye. And so they moved on. And they've sailed to an area called Koz. And in the ancient world, where he's moving from is an area that we would call modern-day Turkey. And he's moving through the Mediterranean, and he's heading to Jerusalem. But just before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops off in a place called Caesarea. You all know Caesarea, obviously. But Caesarea, if, you, if you're not familiar, is just north of Jerusalem. And so he stops there, and while he's there, something really significant happens. Come with me to Acts 21, 10 to 14. It says, After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Am I, am I ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. So while they're in this area called Caesarea, which is kind of a major city, the last stop before they get to Jerusalem, a guy called Agabus, who's called a prophet, meaning that he's given a special revelation from God, comes up to Paul and he does a weird thing. And prophets, prophets were known for being weird. Throughout the Old Testament, they were weird guys. Think about the kid who ate glue in class. That's... That's prophet-level kind of stuff, right? And so he comes up to Paul, takes his belt off him, binds his hands and his feet, and he says, the owner of this belt, I mean, he knows it's Paul, so I don't know why he doesn't just say, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you, but he says, the owner of this belt is going to be bound in this way, and he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles or non-Jews. And when they hear this, they start saying to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul won't have it. Paul says, look, am I, have I not demonstrated so far that for the sake of the gospel, for this truth about Jesus that saves lives, am I not willing not only to be bound but actually to die? And you guys have been with me. You know how close I've been to death and how many times. And so he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going there to testify about Jesus. And I love what Luke writes. There's, there's such resignation in this. He just says at the end, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. We just gave up and we said the Lord's will be done. But that line, the Lord's will be done, 
is not like a throwaway line. Like, well, Paul's stubborn. It's hard to get him to do what he really should do. He's a typical guy. He won't do stuff for himself, like go to the doctor or anything that's going to be good for him. He's just going to go to Jerusalem and get beat up, so the Lord's will be done. Now, it's quite deliberate here. God has specifically revealed to them and to Paul what's about to happen. He says, you're going to be bound and arrested. You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles, that is to the Romans, and that will be your fate. And the reason that, they tell, that they're told this ahead of time is so that they won't be shocked or they won't think, my gosh, everything's out, completely out of control, but to know that this, in fact, is how God will work. That this will happen to Paul, not because things are out of control, but because this is part of God's strange and sovereign will for how the gospel would be advanced. And you think of this, and he's sovereign over that too. So just be ready for that throughout the time. That's kind of like a, sometimes preachers do like living illustrations or physical, physical gags during a sermon. So I thought, let's let a few pigeons in. But here we see that this is not outside God's will. And you would think, you know, if you're looking at it with only human eyes, you would think, why would God allow this? This guy, Paul, has had an incredible ministry. So many people, so many churches have been planted. So many people have come to salvation. This is the worst possible time for a key leader like that to get sidelined. Right? The movement is really, it's really kicking off across the Roman Empire now. Why would you take out the one guy that's having such an impact? But this shouldn't surprise us because the mission of God is carried out in the shadow of the cross. Just think about the cross. That it was God's will and God's design to send his own son Jesus to be rejected and despised by his own people and to be crucified by wicked men so that the forgiveness of sins could be made available to all people. In the cross, God sovereignly used the most wicked act ever committed to bring about the greatest good ever possible in human history. God used the greatest single human attempt to smear and defame the glory of God to in fact demonstrate and spread and share His glory. God used a moment of seeming powerlessness to demonstrate His absolute sovereign power even over His enemies. This is the way of God's strange and wonderful sovereignty. This is how God demonstrates His glory and might and power. How He demonstrates His complete and sovereign control. When you're a kid, the way that an older sibling would demonstrate their complete power over a younger sibling would be to take their hand and strike them with it and say while they're doing it, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Because what could demonstrate more, like a more superior control than making someone punch themselves with their own hand? In the same way, God says to his adversary and those who would align with him, stop hitting yourself. That at the cross, when Satan the enemy tried to use what he could against God, God instead used it to bring about his purposes and his will. He has complete control. He has complete mastery and sovereignty. Like a master martial artist who can use his adversary's attacks against him to actually wound his adversary, 
So God glorifies himself in a world that's wrecked with sin. God is in complete control. So when he says here, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. He says, because this is how I'm going to advance the gospel in a way that nobody would expect. Just as nobody expected Jesus to come and to die for the sins of the world, so God now, as he carries this message forward, is using unexpected ways and means. And so here in Paul's life, this will be the pattern. That the gospel is going to go forward in the strangest possible ways. And here, it's going to happen as he goes to Jerusalem. And so Paul does. He goes to Jerusalem. And first when he gets there, he meets with the Christian leaders who are there, including James, who is Jesus' brother. And he tells them about all the people who have come to faith, all the non-Jewish people who are now following Jesus, all the churches that have been planted. And they're encouraged. But they say to Paul, hey, Paul, there are a bunch of guys here who know that you're in town and they're out to get you. They're saying that you're anti-God, that you're anti-the law, that you're anti-Jewish, all this stuff. And so it would really help if you kind of did, it was kind of a, a purification ritual that some of the, the, the Christian men were doing at the time. And said it would really help if you actually did this. And so Paul says, yep, no problem. I'll do that just to demonstrate that I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm not all the things that they're saying about me. But as he's going to the temple... We're told that some Jews from Asia, so remember when he was in Turkey, which in the, in the Bible here in the Old Testament, in the ancient world was called Asia or Asia Minor. It says while he was there, a bunch of Jewish people who tried to take his life several times are in Jerusalem and they see him. And they're like, that's that Paul guy. And they, they start stirring up strife about him. They say that he's doing things at the temple that he shouldn't be doing. And so he's, he's arrested. And at this point, he's, he's brought before a council and not only that, they begin to strike him. And so they're beating up, and while, while they're beating him up, a local Roman authority called a tribune sees the chaos that's happening, and he intervenes, and he breaks it all up. And then Paul says to the tribune as he's being taken away, he's like, look, I just want to say something to the crowd. And you just think of the guts of Paul, this group of people who've just tried to beat you up. He comes out and says, actually, I just want to speak to them. Just give me a minute. And so Paul speaks to the crowd, and he gives his testimony. He tells the crowd, look, I, I used to be a Pharisee. I was a Jewish leader. I used to persecute Christians and even oversaw the murder of Christians. But he says, but I came to know Jesus and he changed my life completely. And now I trust him fully and my life is laid down to actually share this gospel message. And he says, and my mission from Jesus is to take this message to non-Jews. And at that point, they don't want to hear anymore. They've had enough and they're sick of it and they, they call for him to be punished and even killed. And so the tribune, who's the local Roman authority, says, right, we need to sort this out. We've got councils and proper ways of trialing this guy, so we need to do that rather than just give him over to vigilante justice. So he calls all the Jewish leaders together, and as a Roman authority, he sits in on the trial. And what we read in 23.10 is what happens at this trial, as Paul is sitting there being tried by the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And just look what happens. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting here to judge me according to the law? And yet, you, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection that of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. I love the cheekiness of Paul in this passage. First, he's polite. He starts right out the gate by saying, Brothers, I don't have anything against you. I've lived in good conscience my whole life. And then the high priest orders him to be struck. And then Paul says, you whitewashed wall. Now in the ancient world, I know that doesn't sound very aggressive, but that is, that is code for calling someone a hypocrite. If you whitewashed a wall, let me give you like a modern example. If you're renting a place and your roof is covered with mold, and instead of getting rid of the mold, the landlord just paints white over it, that's like whitewashing. It doesn't deal with the problem, it's just paint over the top. So to whitewash something was to not properly fix it, but to make it look like it's clean when it's really not. And Paul says to this high priest, you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. You who pretend to be a leader of God's people would order me to be struck in the face, knowing that this is against God's law. And the response to him is, Paul, you can't disrespect a high priest. And I don't know if you caught it in his tone there. It's very dry. But he says, I didn't know there was a high priest here. As in saying, there's no one in this room who's acting like a leader of God's people. So I didn't know there was one. But then, as things kick off, I don't know if you noticed it there, but Paul does something even cheekier. He notices that in the room, the people who are holding him to trial don't like each other. There's two groups. There's Pharisees and there's Sadducees. They were both Jewish sects and they did not get along. And the only reason they're here in the room together is that they can agree on one thing and that they hate Paul. And so Paul thinks, okay, let's see how this goes. And he says... I'm a Pharisee, and really the reason I'm on trial is because I believe in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees kick off, and the Sadducees are mad about that, and they start fighting each other. It would be like being in a room where you're on trial, and you realize that the room is very politically left and right. And then you say, well, I'm just on trial because there's only two genders. And then you just watch it kick off, and then, and then duck out and smoke bomb afterwards. That's the equivalent of what Paul's doing here. But the crazy thing is that throughout all of this, God said that Paul would be bound, that he said that he would be arrested. And through this whole process, Paul has had opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel again and again in front of people who are outright opposed to Jesus. But the trial ends in chaos, and the Roman tribune who's in charge of keeping things orderly orders that Paul be taken out of the room because he says, quote, he's going to be torn apart. Things have gotten so violent that he's like, I've got to get this guy out of here. And so he takes him out. But then we read in sentence 11 of the same chapter, the Paul gets this message from God that very night. In Acts 23.11 we read this, 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So God's purpose in all of this is that Paul is going to testify to the gospel not only in Jerusalem, but all the way in the center of the Roman Empire. Then in all of these circumstances, while it seems like everything is going as wrong for Paul as it could possibly be going, while it seems like this is an absolute loss for the gospel, that while one of the key leaders in the church is being arrested and nearly dies, that this would be the worst possible thing for the gospel. And yet God says to him here, take courage. This is all a part of my plan. That actually you are going to testify to the gospel here and even all the way in Rome. God is going to make sure that the gospel spreads even as people try to stop it spreading. And then from here, it gets even funnier. After the council meeting, they decide it's time for Paul to die. They realize that he kind of hoodwinked them and now they're mad about it. And so they decide that he's going to die. And 40 men take an oath that they will not drink or eat until they have killed Paul. That's the oath that they take. But again, in God's sovereign sense of humor, Paul's nephew hears about this plot and tells Paul. And Paul says, you need to tell the tribune, the Roman authority. And look what he says. In Acts 23, 20 to 24, it says, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one what you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions, and remember a centurion is in charge of a hundred men, and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers, with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. God sovereignly ordains that Paul's nephew would hear of this plot. And he tells the tribune, and the tribune actually believes him. And so their plot's foiled. And there must have been some hungry boys in Jerusalem that month. Because he sends him now to Caesarea. So he's going back to Caesarea which is a safe garrison where he knows that a trial can be held for Paul and where he can ensure his safety. And he sends him there with 200 soldiers. And Paul himself is on a horse. And there is absolutely no way for them to get to him. And all of this was brought about by God. And so Paul is sent to Caesarea. And when he gets there, he is brought before the governor. So Paul has now testified before the local Roman authority in Jerusalem, before the council of leadership there, and now he testifies before a governor. He shares with the governor the gospel, and this governor named Felix is curious about the gospel and brings his wife along to hear the gospel as well, and Paul shares it with them. But however, Felix is holding out that Paul will actually offer him a bribe in order to get out of jail, and Paul refuses to knowing that this would dishonor God. And so instead, he stays in chains for two more years. And after two years, Felix is replaced as governor by a governor called Festus. Because apparently to be a governor in that area, you had to have an F name. And so Festus takes over. And when he becomes governor, 
the first thing he does is go up to Jerusalem to meet the Jewish leaders and basically just kind of introduce himself. It's kind of like a sales call as you, get in, you know, as you take over someone's district. You go around to all your clients and just check that they're all happy with things. And so he goes up to Jerusalem to check in with them. And these, even two years later, and we're not told what happened to the guys who'd taken that 40-day, that hunger strike sort of thing or whatever it was, the 40 men rather, who'd decided they weren't going to eat or drink because it's now two years later. And he goes up to Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders are still seething and plotting. And they see an opportunity with this new governor. And it's kind of like, you know when you get a, like a new substitute teacher and they don't know the rules of the classroom? So they don't know that this situation's already been sorted out and so they try it again. And so they're like, hey, um, I, there might, it's a bit random, but there might be this guy Paul in your garrison down in Caesarea. What do you think about maybe just bringing him up here for a trial? But with this, again, God is sovereignly in control. And he doesn't allow Paul to be brought up. And Festus refuses their request. And so he stays in Caesarea and testifies to the gospel now to a new governor. And after he does this, the governor decides that he doesn't know what, he, what he's going to do with Paul. And Paul, at this point, appeals to Caesar. Now, as a Roman citizen, if you appealed to Caesar, if your life was on the line, you could say, I want my case tried by Caesar himself. That is the highest possible authority. Now, that's going to mean years and years of waiting in jail. But Paul makes this request, and once he's made it, they have to follow through on it. And so Festus realized that he's actually appealed to Caesar, and so there's nothing much he can do with him other than just sort of hold on to him. But he decides in the intervening time to call a king to come and hear from Paul. So now Paul has testified to the local authorities, to the governor, to the next governor, and now to a king. And we pick up the story in Acts 26 as he testifies to the gospel before King Agrippa. And he says this in 26, 2-3, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Herod, was, Herod Agrippa was king of the region where the Jewish people lived, mostly. And he was supposed to be Jewish himself. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, had actually rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. However, Herod and the line of kings after him were not really considered by the Jewish people to be genuine or authentically Jewish. He had kind of, the, this line of kings had sort of been appointed by the Romans. And so, as you can understand, the Jewish people were like, you're not really about us or from us. But the reason Paul says that you know about these things is that he is meant to be informed about the Scriptures. And so then Paul goes on to give his testimony, to say that he was well known among the Jewish community, to give his credentials as a Pharisee and a leader of God's people, and then to say that he himself met Jesus and had his life turned upside down. And he explains to him that on the way to Damascus, he saw Jesus in a vision and that Jesus spoke to him directly. And in Paul's account, Jesus said to him this, in Acts 28, 15-18. It says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you an o to open their eyes, 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just think how incredible this moment is. Paul is now testifying before a king. And he plainly lays before him the gospel. That Jesus is Lord of all. That Jesus laid down his life. And that Paul's purpose and mission in life is to tell as many people as he possibly can about this Jesus before he dies. And that this gospel is able to take people from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God and to receive forgiveness. To have their sins completely forgiven and washed away. And imagine how much that would have meant for a person like Paul, with a history like Paul, for a man who had blood on his hands, innocent blood on his hands, to hear the message of the gospel and to know that the God of the universe who knows all and will judge all has forgiven him and forgiven him completely. And so now he stands fearless before a king, though he's in chains, testifying to the goodness of God and to the grace of the gospel. And all of this has been brought about by God's sovereign purpose and control. That God has engineered and orchestrated all of these events just so he might be able to testify before these rulers and authorities. The people who would never have had any access to the gospel, who lived in circles of society that people would have had no access to. Now Paul has a personal audience with these people and is sharing the gospel with them. This is the strange and wonderful will of God. Who would have thought that this would be how God would advance the gospel? By having Paul arrested and thrown into prison. By having his life threatened over and over again. And yet this is how he's advanced the gospel. This is how he's brought it about. And so he continues to testify to Agrippa and eventually Festus, the governor, just says, Paul, you're, you're out of your mind. He says, your great learning has driven you out of your mind. You, you just... You're so smart, you've actually lost touch with reality. And Paul says to him, look, I haven't lost touch with reality. There is only one truth, and it's Jesus, and you need to know him. And Festus even marvels at him. He says, like, Paul, are you, are you standing here saying this stuff, believing, like, I might get saved while I'm standing here? And Paul's like, yeah, I've seen it that many times. Why not? And right to the end of this story, we see that God is sovereignly at work in the lives of these people. That as Paul moves closer and closer to Rome, more and more people are hearing of the gospel. And not only that, but so many of the letters that we have in the New Testament that make up the Bible were written from jail by Paul. That instead of, instead of it crushing this movement, that actually this is the very thing that God uses to accelerate the gospel across the Roman Empire and to strengthen the churches. This is God's sovereign will. And so what do we do with this? Well, if you are here and a follower of Christ, do you know, as the Scriptures tell you, that the world around you is under the sovereign control of a good and faithful God? There are so many things that we take for granted that seem so automatic to us that we just imagine that there really is nothing driving them. But I read a recent reflection from a Christian writer then even if you were to think on just the most basic, base-level kind of daily reality, that even that very thing is under the sovereign control of God. Just think about the sun rising every day. That the testimony of the Scriptures is that the sun rises every day 
not because the world is some giant wind-up clock that's now just automatically winding itself down, but because God sovereignly wills it, that he never gets tired of every morning painting a new sunrise. But not only that, if you think a bit more deeply on it, it's not just that God paints a new sunrise every day, that actually somewhere in the world, at any given moment, the sun is always rising. And so God is sovereignly, continuously, always painting new sunrises and never tiring of it. 24 hours a day, year after year. That the world isn't meaningless. That this isn't just one of many iterations of many universes that were inevitable and obvious. That actually this is the world that God has created that he is sovereignly in control of and he knows you and even knows every hair on your head. One poet wrote it like this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Generations have trod, trod, and trod. All is seared with trade, bleared, and smeared with soil. But for all of this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down in things. And though the last lights of the black west went, a morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost overbent, the world broods with warm breasts and ah with bright wings. There is a sovereign God overseeing all of his creation, continuously and always, and overseeing your life. And so with this, we are called to be a people who remember that though the world may look out of control, that God is sovereignly bringing about his purposes. That he is calling people right now from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. That there is nothing and no one that is outside of his control. And what this should move in God's people more than anything is to a real depth of prayer. That we should be a people who bring things before God knowing that our prayers are not just kind of some kind of a, I don't know, a closed letter that we just throw up and hopefully, hopefully it comes back red. But that actually as we pray, God works through it. That God is powerful and that he changes things. And as we think about our lives and our call to be a part of his great mission, that we're called to be a praying people. That there might be people in your life who you think, look, there is no way that God would save them. Or the way that things have come about, it couldn't possibly be the case that they would come to know Christ. And yet if God was sovereignly working in this situation where Paul was arrested and where he was beaten almost nearly within an inch of his life, that actually God used even Roman authorities to bring about the gospel, that even God used those who were trying to kill the gospel to spread the gospel. If God can do that, he can do anything. And he does. We're called to be a praying people. And so here's the challenge I want to put to you. In the series coming up and over the next couple of months, we have plenty of opportunities to share the gospel with people, to invite people to come and hear the gospel for the first time. But I wouldn't want us to get into the mindset where our belief is that it's going to come down to my, I don't know what, my personal being articulate or saying things the right way or inviting people in just the right way or this, that or the other, that actually unless God brings, any, brings something about, nothing will happen. And so on the 9th of October, what I put, what I put before the church is to take a day to pray. And for us as a church community, wherever you are and wherever you're working, 
to be bringing before God the great need of souls that are lost and to pray that God would work in miraculous ways. That would see him work in the lives of our friends and family, but also in the network of friends and family surrounding this church community, knowing that God is more jealous for his glory than we are, knowing that God is at work in a million ways that we don't observe day after day, and knowing that God is bringing about his purposes always. May it be the case that we would be a people who trust in him and who pray to him because there is a good and sovereign God who rules over the universe. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that even in seemingly crazy and out-of-control circumstances, that you are sovereignly in control. That in this story we saw that in the life of Paul, there were so many times where from the outside it looked as though you had completely lost control and yet you were bringing about your purposes. The Paul might testify before rulers and authorities of the lordship of Jesus, of the forgiveness of sins in him, and of the gospel that can take us from darkness to light. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust you with our whole lives, that we would trust that when things seem most out of control, that you are often most at work, and that this would lead us to be a praying people. And, Father, we pray that you would bring many sons and daughters home to Christ, that you would work powerfully as your people share the gospel, that you would be transforming lives. And Father, we just praise you that you are the God who loves with an everlasting love and that there is none like you. So we pray that we trust our finite and small lives into your infinite hands for the sake of your holy name. Amen.